Maya Govanen, welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I've got a special guest today. This is David Rowe, author of the Proverbs of Middle Earth, which if you haven't read, you should. Uh, it's it's not just a collection of proverbs, although he has a really handy index, which is, in fact, a huge collection of proverbs. It's really more of like a mythical or fictional anthropology of the various cultures of Middle Earth via their proverbs, which is a really interesting way of looking at it. And it's funny because I actually got for Christmas last year a collection of Tom Shippey's uh, various um papers that he's done on Tolkien and one of them is about this particular topic and I was wondering did you read that and then decide to do the book or did he do that after you did the book or did were they just completely independent that is exactly how it started that that, that little essay or talk or whatever it was um I read it man years ago 12 years ago um and it's called a fund of wise sayings and in it he says there's a number of invented proverbs um, that Tolkien hid along the way in his books. And I just thought that's how it got started for me. I thought it might be fun to collect them. So I just started reading through and collected them. Um, and I was expecting to find 60, 70, 80. And there was <laughs> a lot more than I expected. Um, and I, yeah, so it's so fun. Like I was just thinking how did it start for me and then it that's exactly what it was it was that that little essay yeah and it was it was really interesting for me reading his essay after I read your book because mm. it was like wait a minute these two have to be connected somehow or other um and of course I believe he also did one of the blurbs for yeah yeah yeah, yeah. in fact it's the the bottom the bottom blurb on the back cover that's a really terrible shot because it's a it's not a very photogenic cover uh, but, but yeah, he actually did a, a one of the blurbs for the back of your book, so he obviously still had that in mind. Um, and I do want to talk a little bit about the book itself, but I also want to go into kind of the broader aspect of wisdom imparted by Tolkien. As far as the book itself, what made you decide to go kind of with the anthropological aspect of it, really examining the cultures? Yeah, I mean, the way it worked for me is that I started off having having made this sort of collection i started blogging them um this is a long long time ago and my plan was to link things together by themes um or to go through the stories sort of chronologically but as i did that it just started standing out to me more and more that each of the different peoples each of the different civilizations have a distinctness to their proverbs so you can tell the difference between an elvish proverb or a dwarvish proverb or, you know, whatever, one of the hobbits proverbs, because they reflect the culture that they're from. Um, and so that's, that's the reason it, like I didn't intend for it to go that way, but it was kind of one of the discoveries along the way that I made. Yeah. Well, I have a feeling a lot of books are written like that. And Tolkien's book, of course, is also written a lot mm. like that. <laughs> um, and actually, that brings up an interesting point. You've you're you're obviously British, but you've mm -hmm. lived a lot of your life in America, I believe, as well, right? Yeah, last ten years. Yeah, yeah. Um, my wife, as it happens, spent a semester in a uh, so summer semester in Russia. She's always been really interested in Russia, 
And one of the things that she's been interested in beyond just learning the language or whatever is Russian fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And fairy tales are in a way a lot like proverbs because a lot of them teach like morality lessons or yeah, whatever. Exactly. And one of the things that she's pointed out to me over time is how Russian fairy tales, most of them have kind of this backdrop message of stop complaining and just get it done because they live in this really brutally cold environment mm. where there's, you can't grow much for most of the year. It's like life is hard, get over it and deal with it. <laughs> mm. And that's kind of their, the cultural wisdom imparted by their fairy tales. And so I was wondering, have you noticed a similar kind of uniqueness between not necessarily fairy tales because America doesn't really have a lot of native fairy tales. It has a few. Um, But have you noticed that kind of a difference in British and American culture and the kinds of wisdom imparted in those ways? Yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert. So it's, I, that would be my first thing to say is that I, it's not like it's something I've studied, but one of the things I've noticed is like American superheroes versus British superheroes, completely different. Um, And I'm thinking there aren't honestly many British superheroes and that's kind of the point, but even like cartoon characters, like I grew up watching cartoons about superheroes, but it was like Banana Man, uh, Danger Mouse. Um, Like these guys were not going to save the world. They were just like, it's very small scale, you know? Right. Whereas um, the American comic book superhero tradition is completely different um and there's an emphasis on moral rectitude allied with strength which i think is a very american um way of seeing its own purpose as it were and so like i think the tales that you tell yourself absolutely speak a lot about a culture like just as you were talking about russia i absolutely i was because you're right, like fairy tales work in a similar way to proverbs. Um, song, like traditional songs do that too. And even things like, it's interesting that in, Ho- in The Hobbit, um, Tolkien uses riddles and riddles do the same thing. Like they're part of oral culture. They're a thing that's passed down and passed down and passed down and no one really necessarily knows where they come from. But they pass on a sense of identity in the type of wisdom or in the type of focal points that they have so yeah i mean america is still a very young country really and so it's one of those things that a real a real study could be very fun um but it's i don't know i don't know enough to to give a real answer but i that that's what came to mind was like the the cartoon characters the stuff that i grew up watching so different in america yeah well, I can appreciate that answer, though, because one of the things that I've kind of realized over the past probably decade or so, especially with the rise of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all this stuff, is that I mentioned earlier, America doesn't have a whole lot of its own fairy tales, but it does have its own mythology. And that's mm-hmm. they have just basically created a mythology in the comic books that they didn't yeah. have inherited from other places. Yeah. And you're right. There's, I mean, you mentioned the moral rectitude allied with strength. I mean, the two characters that come to mind when I think of that are Superman for the DC comics and then mm-hmm. Captain America for Marvel. They're right. both very much kind of like that emblematic 
symbol of what the American ideal is. We're the biggest, we're the strongest, but we're also right. Now, of course, mm-hmm. you can take that too far and think that whatever you do is right. <laughs> but the the point of the ideal is it's it's fine to be the strongest, but the mm-hmm. you you need to be right along with that, and that's what right. makes you the hero, not the fact yeah. that you have the power. Yeah, so I actually kind of like that you went there because I think that's a really interesting uh, parallel that America doesn't have a whole lot of its own history in terms of you know the the Native Americans, of course, have their own cultural background and all that stuff, but for the the European descendants who now live here, they kind of left their old stuff behind and what they put in its place is largely comic book heroes, Mm -hmm. which is kind of fascinating. And it's, it's not even that they completely left behind the other stuff, because as I always like Mm -hmm. to point out, when I talk about this, they're still borrowing Thor from Norse mythology. (laughs) I mean, Um, uh, but it's, it is, it's a little bit like, um, you know, American gods by Neil Gaiman, where you have like the old gods, and the new gods um so you have the old the 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 i mean in american gods odin is one of the main characters but then you have the god of the internet the god of the shopping mall the god and there's they're in this competition and that's an interesting thing in it like it works because that there is that cultural clash in america like and so when you talk about proverbs like there's a lot of traditional british or european proverbs that americans have Right, you know that like they've been passed on just the same, um, and they may be used slightly differently. Nursery rhymes get passed on, like you know, you sing similar songs to your children here than you do in Britain. Um, Although a but, lot of them have lost their, we've lost all sense of their meaning over time. Well, I mean, that's kind of that's one of the wonderful things about oral culture as well is that things take on different meanings as they get passed down which that's kind of mysterious. And then you look back into it and you're like, what, that was about the Black Death? I, I didn't realize that. <laughs> you went to the same place I did <laughs> because yeah. I was thinking of Ring Around the Rosie, <laughs> right. which is, yeah. that's a fascinating study all, all to itself. Um, getting back though to the, the idea of Proverbs, one of the interesting things about that topic in the Lord of the Rings specifically is Celeborn's proverbious statement about proverbs, which is mm-hmm. well, not about proverbs per se, but about things that old about wise law. women say. Right. Yeah, you know, he mentions that wise old women may keep in you know in their sayings wisdom that other people have right. forgotten. So you do not probably... despise the law that's passed down. Yeah, right. Um, and so in that line. There's a few places where Tolkien kind of does this thing where he says something through a character and you're pretty sure what he's really saying is you should take this to heart, reader. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of them. He's telling us, and of course, this was a lot of his his own study, was studying the things that had been lost in history because mm-hmm. either the manuscripts had died and the oral tradition had died out like much of English culture because of the Norman mm-hmm. Conquest and everything else. Yeah. But so he's he's trying to put in mind, we really need to remember these things because they actually may be important, not merely within the context of this one little right. story, but and in like, our like, own so tradition. Is it, I don't remember if it's Aomer Theoden now who says, 
you know, what days are this dreams and legends spring to life out of the grass. Hey, Omer. Um, right. And, um, and they're a young culture, you know, the Rahirim, and they need to keep in mind ancient things because said like they have fairy taught fairy tales fairy stories about hobbits but no one believes them they they have tales about ants they no one really does anything with them right. but those things have been passed on they still they're still alive and it's in the same way that you know in Minas Tirith they have this rhyme of law about Kingsfoil and it's just like something that that gets repeated no one thinks that actually has a purpose to it and then suddenly this thing comes to life in front of their eyes and it's like oh it wasn't just something for old wives it was something that we that was like a gift that we were passing on and passing on without even realizing it yeah well and that that is actually another it's kind of like the culmination of Kelleborn's statement because it's literally an old woman who repeats right. the rhyme and then you know, it turns out she's actually spouting something that's really, really useful <laughs> as it turns out. And, you know, you mentioned Aomir's conversation. That's actually one of my favorite conversations in the entire uh, story, really. It's where he's talking to Aragorn for the first time. And what he ends up saying is, you know, the, you know, there's legends springing out of the grass. How, how am I to make a decision? You know, is essentially his question. Ar Aragorn's response is, as you always have right and wrong haven't changed since yesteryear which i'm not so sure aragorn is spouting a proverb there but it's at least at least proverb adjacent you know mm -hmm. he's he's kind of saying something that is in a proverbial type of tone which conveys a sense of wisdom it's like just because it's a tough situation doesn't mean suddenly the moral dynamic has entirely changed and that's another thing besides proverbs that i think that tolkien does really well in in imparting wisdom is through the dynamics of character interactions and how they relate to each other and that conversation between aragorn and eomer is actually one of my favorite examples of that but there's many others i mean gandalf and denethor talk to each other and in that conversation you know, they end up spouting a lot of wisdom at each other, mostly Gandalf spouting the wisdom and Denethor not. But <laughs> I mean, even Denethor has his nuggets. So, but that's another angle that, you know, if we wanted to just talk more broadly about the wisdom of Tolkien, mm -hmm. you know, you could, you could write additional books just on a bunch of different topics like that. So I was curious, did you have any other thoughts on, other ways in which Tolkien imparts wisdom besides just the Proverbs? I think that I was just, I, I'm one of these people that follows uh, exploring Lord of the Rings with Corey Olson. And they've just been talking about Gimli seeing in the distance, these mountains that mean right. so much to him, even though he's only like, he says he's only seen them once in waking life but there he has songs about them he has like he has so much memorized he knows what they look like even though he's not been there because like stuff has been passed on because it's valuable and so i feel like um talking it's more that it's not necessarily that he is saying 
here is some wisdom, I'm going to give it to you. I think it's more that he gives uh, an embodiment of lots of very valuable ways of approaching subjects. So approaching subjects like goodness or duty or bravery, courage, or like just making decisions. Like he, he manages through having different civilizations to have different perspectives on tricky subjects. And then in the fellowship, they often have to work out, well, which one are we going to choose then? Um, I mean, that's one of the famous ones is, is you know, Elrond and Gimli discussing right. vows um, because Gimli doesn't really think very much of other peoples. And he really thinks that they ought to swear a vow because, you know, sworn word may strengthen quaking hearts. Um, or break like, it, as Elrond would, would follow uh, and up. Elrond is like, I, I, I have some stories from my family history that that might suggest vows aren't always the best mode of assuring, like, <laughs> like a good future in your group. But they have they have two different cultural perspectives, and they they battle it out with proverbs because they're like, well, my culture says this and my one they don't say it in those terms but that's one of the ways that proverbs function is to encapsulate you know the the worldview or the wisdom of a culture and but a lot of middle earth's cultures don't come up against each other that often like the relationships don't seem to be that strong and so they end up using proverbs or using you know rhymes of law or songs to explain themselves often when they're trying to when they're with someone from a different from a different people and they're trying to explain why they do things the way they do like i'm thinking of faramir and the, the you know his attitude to war which i mean tolkien was a warrior he was in war and he and faramir gives one of the best explanations for why being a pacifist is not an option um for him you know Right. And for his culture, it's like it's not like we fight because we love fighting. It's like war must be where there is an enemy who would destroy all, you know, and you don't fight for what for the joy of the fighting, but for what you're fighting for. And and that kind of he's conveying the Numenorean attitude to war, which is like we always have to be ready to fight even though that's not the goal of our civilization. Whereas with the Rahira, they're just like, let's fight everyone, come on. Um, <laughs> like, they, they have a different attitude to war. They're, they're like that high-hearted um, thing that Faramir talks about, that he thinks Boromir is more like the Rahirim than like the traditional Numenorean ethic. Yeah. Um, that's the cross-cultural kind of side of it. Yeah, that, that's, that's also one of my favorite, you know, monologues i guess in the story and faramir is easily my favorite character probably in the entire story um and yeah i mean he does make a lot of really interesting wisdom nuggets just in that small space and it's also really interesting too because when tolkien goes into the stuff about war and how we shouldn't just glorify the warrior as warrior but then he gives this really rousing passage whenever Theoden leads the charge at the fields of the Pelennor. And every time I read that, I get chills down my spine 
-hmm. And he's very much telling that from the perspective of this is a berserker going into a battle fury and you know, the, the, the Rohirrim behind him burst into song for the joy of battle. It's like, Mm -hmm. that's not what Faramir is advocating. He's advocating against Mm -hmm. that, but nevertheless, you can't help but get into the mode with the Rohirrim whenever they start, because the Mm -hmm. way he writes that passage is so profound. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about Tolkien's ability to, to represent different cultures not even just historical cultures, but even going back to what you were saying about Elrond and Gimli having their little, you know, battle of Proverbs. Mm. These are invented cultures who nevertheless have identifiable backgrounds that explain why their cultures are so different that they would have Proverbs that clash with each other. Dwarves Mm. being the really hardy, you know, indomitable species that they are, they don't think that their hearts can be completely broken by, you know, having sworn an oath and having to choose between mm-hmm. keeping it or and possibly dying or breaking their their word. Whereas Elrond, you know, he's not the same kind of creature as a dwarf. And so he's looking at it from the perspective of, you know, we we may have the best of motives and we may have, you know, a lot on our side, but when push comes to shove the oath of Feanor can really put you in a really bad spot. <laughs> so uh-huh. there's, it's really interesting how Tolkien can give you both sides of something from the strongest possible position. Right. And it's not always easy to choose which one you want. And I like the, the person I think that's a good encapsulation of that is Eowyn because her culture, like her nation is founded on a vow like the the oath so Kyrian and Aeol um so then that's who their identity as a people is all wrapped up in this idea of we've sworn this oath we will be faithful to it and this high it's a real really strong sense of duty and you do your duty it doesn't matter if you all die in the process that's just as glorious as if you win because you fulfilled your oath you're doing your duty and Eowyn is like too long have I heard of duty um like she like you can hear that she's like it's been ringing her ears your her whole life about doing your duty and and so she rebels against orders which is completely against her national ethic but the reason she wants to do it is because she wants to die a warrior's death which is denied to her as a woman and so she she wants to both fulfill her national identity by rebelling against it yeah and and that's that's fascinating to me that like i mean she's obviously like i mean she's suffering (laughs) like she she's mentally not in a great position while she's doing that but you can see how like um to have to have everything in your culture growing up pointing you in one direction you're like but that is not who i want to be anymore and you have to break away from it and so in the same way that like the ents have spent their whole like heaven knows how many thousand years just weathering storms because that's a very tree-ish thing to do you they say you know there's not an old ent can do to hold back a storm he must weather it or crack so they just weather storms and then suddenly they're in a position where like doom will come to us if we stay at home or not and so they become proactive and they go out and fight which they break their own national ethos 
because suddenly they have to. And like that, I, I think that that's a brilliant, Tolkien is so good at not just expressing those different wisdoms, but showing what happens when you come to the point and you don't think you can go along with them anymore. I think, I think that's really, I don't know anywhere else, any other books that have managed to engage with that kind of subject. Yeah, well, and the interesting thing there is that also ties into another one of the Proverbs, too, because one of the things that Gandalf says at the Council of Elrond is it's wisdom to recognize necessity. And that's kind of mm-hmm. what the ints are doing in that instance is they're realizing, you know, our our normal mode of doing things just isn't going to work. And so out right. of necessity, we must take a different path. And since we're already talking about the Council of Elrond yet again, because of Gandalf, uh, again, going back to the the battle of Proverbs you mentioned between Elrond and Gimli, you mentioned exploring Lord of the Rings earlier, which I also follow. I'm a huge fan of what Olsen is doing there, although it's sometimes frustrating how plottingly slow it's getting. <laughs> it's getting to the point where it's like, I don't. That's that's the joy of it, right? I know, but what I'm what I'm worried about is he keeps saying he's going to make it all the way, but it's like, what if you get an accident, <laughs> man? Um, but anyway, on that topic, you had mentioned the Gimli and Elrond Battle of Proverbs, and he was talking about that several episodes back, probably a dozen episodes back by now. Uh, and they were talking about uh, what the reason for Elrond's perspective was, and Olson had this theory that you know he's like it's it's leaving your options open making sure that if you encounter something that means you have to change your approach or your direction you can do it without coming into conflict with a sworn oath now that is true but it's really not what elrond is getting at if you just read it on the surface of the passage because mm-hmm. what elrond's really getting at is it, because what he immediately follows it up with is let him not swear to walk in the night who has not yet seen the twilight, or I may be messing that up a little bit, but that's pretty close. And so his point there is, if you don't know how hard it's going to be, don't assume that you're going to be able to keep your word all the way through. So he's not really talking about keeping your options open, but it's interesting that this piece of wisdom that Elrond is imparting Mm -hmm. Is wise from both perspectives, both the one that Elrond explicitly states and the one that Corey Olson kind of adds as an additional perspective. So that's another way in which wisdom works is that you can look at it from any angle and you can't really undermine it, I think. Yeah, there's kind of a multifaceted thing to true wisdom there's like good sense like hobbit sense is a type of wisdom but it only really works in the shire like it's quite parochial um whereas what the reason that elrond is such an incredible counselor is that he is cross-cultural like he is like his family line is cross-cultural but he also has people has always had people passing through as well and so I think that he's in that peculiar position of being able to see from multiple perspectives and explain things that otherwise would be a barrier to collaboration. He's kind of like a, 
a fulcrum around which collaboration can happen because he's particularly gifted in that way. But like in that example, I think he's mainly thinking about the hobbits, especially about Merry and Pippin. Like he just doesn't know if they're going to be able to handle it and that it would really genuinely break their hearts if they had to go against some kind of vow. Um, like I, I wonder what it would have been like, because we know that ultimately Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli do not stick with the ring. They do not pursue Frodo and Sam. They make a different choice. Could, if they had, it depends what the, the oath might have been, but if they'd made an oath to support Frodo no matter what, Merry and Pippin would, ne would have been stuck, you know, well, they would have had a different story, obviously, because that's the way Lord of the Rings works. Is that right. if that hadn't happened, things would have worked out in a different way somewhere else. But they're like Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli would have had to cross the river and follow Frodo and Sam because that was their oath. But Elrond is, I think, very wise in avoiding trying to predict the future. Um, like there's some things that you can predict, but very few. And I think that's one of the things that he cautions about so often. Like, he, you know, he says, Anduin the Great flows past many shores. And that's kind of like a bit of esoteric geography. <laughs> but at the same time, what he's saying is, like, where you're going to, you do not know where you might end up. Like, this course is not known to you yet. Gandalf doesn't really know the route they're going to take, let alone how they're going to achieve it. And so to make a vow when you don't even know what your job is going to be, what your, your individual task would be foolish. So I think Elrond is really good at protecting them from being in that situation. But like you say, he uses proverbs that make sense from his own um, family tradition, his own, you know, I was going to say ethnic, ethnic's the wrong word, isn't it? It's hard, hard <laughs> to know how to talk about your, the, the worldview of your people. That, right. that's, that, he's able to do that in both ways. Yeah. Well, it's funny, too, that you mentioned Gandalf not being 100% sure how they're going to achieve it, because that actually was in one of the most recent episodes of Exploring Lord of the Rings, where Corey Olson was talking about how he says, well, we're going to get over the mountains, go through the secret wood, which we don't even know yet is Lothlorien, and then down the river, and then and then he stops himself, and Pippin says, and then what? And Gandalf says, well, to the end of the journey, eventually, <laughs> not really giving any specific details. And a long time ago, I actually did a video kind of exploring the idea of what was Gandalf's plan? Did he have a plan? Yeah. Because I, I think my conclusion at the end of that video, and it's been a while, so I may be misremembering, but I think my conclusion at the end of the video was he was probably going to leave it up to Providence to figure it out. Because Kinda. that's in large part what the entire plan is, is – you know, they're they're trusting in the fact that they have a duty to do, but that Providence is ultimately going to back them up. And they're, you know, that that of course comes very deeply from Tolkien's Christian background, that, you know, a, a large part of wisdom is trusting mm. in Providence, which wouldn't necessarily transfer over to a a different religious or non-religious mm. background, but within the context of the story, of course, it makes all the sense in the world because if right. you're the Silmarillion, we're in a monotheistic universe where God puts his hand in every now and then and makes things work the way they're supposed to. And, and 
you're right. I think that Tolkien's very careful never to preach. Um, but there are so many things that they, it's one of the reasons that you can dive so deeply into these subjects because the case, like Lord of the Rings becomes like a case study where you can, you can see things fleshed out that would might only otherwise be theoretical. Like, you know, why, why should, why should we not try to predict the future? Well, here's a story that explains why, you know, like literally like I, when you go back to like the the hobbits are leaving the shire everything goes wrong immediately like all their plans are terrible straight away nothing that anyone plans to do as soon as they try and make a plan it goes wrong or it gets thwarted or whatever else so it's not even they're on plan b they're down to like plan f g whatever else before they get to rivendell <laughs> like that this it's they're all over the place and so the idea of making plans um like like you were saying, it's wisdom to recognize necessity, Gandalf says. And you see that all the time. There's just a lot of recognizing necessity. It's like, okay, well, we've got to change this plan now. We've got to change this plan. Um, I, it, while you were talking about that, I was thinking about Sam in Kirith Ungol, and he's, he doesn't know what to do. Um, and he's trying to remember what he's been told to do um, because he just wants somebody else to make the decision for him. Right. Um, and so he comes to the decision where he has to take the ring. And then having done that, he doesn't know what to do. Like he's like, he's, he's brilliant because he's, <laughs> I like the way that he talks out loud to himself because he tells you all his pro his thought process. And it's all, it's a constant set of, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. But you wonder if that was almost entirely what Gandalf was doing the whole way through but just from a different perspective, it's like, I know the whole big wide picture and I don't know what to do. Right. You know? Well, and it's also funny you mentioned that because juxtaposing the two, Gandalf at one point says, uh, you know, I was just talking to myself. It's a habit of the wise, you know, because we just talk to the smartest person in the room. It, that's a paraphrase, obviously, but Sam is doing the same thing. He's like, I'm talking to the only other person that I can talk to right now, even though he's not the wise. Yeah. He does have a a certain fund of common sense or hobbit sense about him that lets him ultimately make the right decision. And Sam is actually a really unique case because he doesn't actually arrive at the right decision by really thinking it through. I mean, he, he arrives at half of the right decision that way mm -hmm. because he realizes I have to take the ring because I can't leave it here because then it'll just be taken. And if I just sit here, we'll be taken and captured and killed. Mm -hmm. So I have to take the ring. He reasons himself that far. Mm -hmm. But the right decision that he ends up making to go back and rescue Frodo, he's kind of already made before he even realizes that Frodo is still alive because he reprimands mm. himself saying, you knew it all along, you have to stick with Frodo. It's like his heart was telling him what to do, and he just wasn't listening. And, well, that, and that's that, like, even from in the woody end, the elves tell him, never leave your master. And he repeats it to himself. And, and right. yeah, he tells them, it's like, I don't mean to, even if he goes to the moon, I'm going with him. Like that was always his, his motto to himself, never leave your master. And then he does. And he's like, I knew, yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. 
Well, no, I mean, yeah, but and and the thing about that is, uh, this kind of ties into a totally non-Tolkienian thing. Have you ever read the book by Malcolm Gladwell called, um, I think it's Blink, where he talks about kind of expertise and how people become experts yeah. and like. One of the favorite examples from that book that I remember is there's this art expert who looks at this piece of art and he's like, that's not legit. I remember I that. Yeah. I can't tell you why, but I know it's not. And mm. eventually they found out, yeah, you're right. It wasn't legit. And they figured out why it wasn't. But it was one of those things where it's like, if you train yourself enough in, mm. and in this case, it's Sam training himself, like you said, over and over again by repeating, never leave your master, never, never leave your master you train yourself enough that will eventually, you know, become just your way of operating. And that is, mm. you know, Sam is by definition, not the wisest character in the room. His name is literally half wise, <laughs> mm. but to the extent that he has wisdom, that is his wisdom. And it's one of those things where it goes back to that conversation with Gildor and the elves in the Woody end because he, he tells Frodo after the fact, I feel like I have this thing that I have to do, and I don't know what it is. And mm. you get the sense, you know, after, after we see the whole story and can pick up on the entire context, that he's not just picking up on some inner thing that's welling up within him. He's picking up on something about the music of the Ainur in the background that is informing him in some way of what's going to happen. It's not concrete. It's not articulated, but he's picking mm. up on it. And because of that, he's, you know, the, that connection with the fact that Gildor and the elves had just told him, don't leave your master. Those mm. two things gel and that becomes not just a that's, mantra, but a true piece of wisdom. Uh, for him. I think that that's a great observation. Like the, it's, it's almost, it's partly that he's being prepared along the way, like different things nudge him in particular ways. Right. But then he's also got a sense of purpose or, but he can't put his finger on exactly what it is. <laughs> right. Um, but he just has, but he, he has to see it through. And I think that's real. That's really good. And I, I, I wonder if you could apply that to other characters. I think it's really good for him because like, I mean, when, when he's in the Woody end, that's the first time he has a sort of, premonition sense of vision you yeah. know a sense of like the way because up until that point he just wanted to go and see the elves and then he's seen them on like the second night or whatever <laughs> it is like so what do we do now um but now from that point on it's like he says i seem to see further somehow right i, right. I love that mm. yeah and that you know i'd never thought of that before until we got in this conversation and mm. that's one of the cool things about talking to other people is these ideas percolate and you get to think of things you I, never thought of before one of my favorite quote one it's a tom shippy quote he says what he says one of the best things about tolkien is that you can ask a question and there will probably be an answer and then you can ask a question about the answer and there'll probably <laughs> be another answer and so it the you scratch the surface and before you know what you're doing like the road has swept you off your feet you're going somewhere else <laughs> yeah and and it and and it applies to almost anything. And I think that's one of the reasons that people like you and me don't get bored um, is because like you scratch almost anywhere and there's, there's immediately some, another, there's somewhere to go. Yeah. yeah. There's always something. And, and one of the, 
this is another way, I suppose, in which you could even say that Tolkien imparts wisdom. Uh, you know, there's these parallels in the story that we can see. And one of my favorite examples of a story that he uses lots of parallels is the story of Turin. And you can really mm-hmm. see that come through when you read either the, the the single volume that was released not too long ago by Christopher Tolkien, where he kind of compiled everything together in one volume, or if you even just read the basic Silmarillion narrative plus the Narn Ichin Hurin in the Unfinished right. Tales, because that really contains most of it. Covers but, it, yeah. But there's these parallels, like if you look at Turin's life and you kind of divide it in half, you can see where he's like doing parallel but opposite things on each end. And that in itself is kind of a wisdom uh, teaching method because it's showing you, you know, you could do things the right way or you could do things the wrong way. And and one of the best examples of that, and I really started picking up on this whenever, I think it was when Corey Olson did his series on the Unfinished Tales way back when, when he talked mm-hmm. about it. But he was, one of the parallels that he mentioned was Turin starts off treating very kindly a guy who is lame in one foot, Sador Labadal. And then at the very end of the story, he kills a guy who is lame in one foot and calls him all kinds of nasty names. Mm. And it's literally like his character arc has inverted from one end of the story to the other. And you Mm. can see progression along the story arc. But not only is it just really interesting narrative technique, it's also, it's implicitly teaching you a lesson. Like don't, don't start down the path of what you might call the dark side where you're just, you know, doing things out of anger and selfishness and whatnot. If you stick with being kind and doing things for the right reasons and trying to be good to other people, mm. you'll make fewer mistakes just in general. Yeah. And it, and it's, it's, I mean, this may not be important to other people, but me, but of all the, of all the Tolkien's writings outside of Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, that story is the one with the most proverbs in. Um, you get Sador especially gives a lot, but they're rarely. Turin doesn't really use them very much, but they're they're all around everywhere else, and that doesn't happen in the other First Age stories, as far as I'm, I'm aware at all. But that did the like you saying the the arc is telling you it's 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 it, it's giving you messages, but it's not like like a morality tale like you know in the sort of victorian era where it's like you know is it in alice in wonderland she's always being asked what's the moral of the story and tolkien hated stories that were just dressed up morality tales he wanted it to be a story because it was a story because it was a good story right but the fact that it conveys and communicates um something that's not just true for the people in the story but it's true for us as we read the story um that's the richness and like what he called applicability that is hidden everywhere. Yeah. And that's, you know, again, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier is how he does. I think you mentioned it where he doesn't do a lot of preaching. I mean, he he very much avoids the preaching, Mm. but he nevertheless manages to do a lot of stuff that is, didactic or pedagogical in some sense Mm. because he is teaching through a bunch of different methods 
Proverbs being one of them, or just even observing how different characters play out. Because one of the cool things, speaking of parallelisms, we've got Theoden on one side and we've got Denethor on the other side. And they're very parallel characters, almost like the first time I read The Lord of the Rings, I was probably only about 10 or 12, so I didn't pick up on it as much. Mm. But over time, as I got older and gained a little more literary awareness, I you know picked up on the fact that, hey, there's this parallel track here, and they're like literally running alongside each other. It's just that one's about to go off a cliff and the other one is not. <laughs> uh, but in doing so, there are lessons to be learned. And one of those lessons is you know what what Gandalf tells Denethor it's like your duty is to go out and defend your city you may die doing it but that's still your job Theoden lives up to that ethic Denethor yeah. does not and Denethor yeah. dies like a heathen king of old right exactly and like you're saying so it's didactic in the sense that it's teaching but what's happening is that the characters are the ones being taught and some of them are receiving the lesson as it were and others are not um but yeah that's exactly right and so we watch and we see the effect of that like we see the effect of um denethor sort of collapsing into this sort of nihilistic um the hopeless state like he's like even if we won this battle, it wouldn't make any difference. What's the point? What's the point? What's the point? Kind of thing. Um, and whereas Theoden is like, even if we lose this battle, we'll have done our duty. You know, that, that's And died gloriously on time. Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 that's what, and that's what he says when he dies. He says, like, I go now to my father's in whose great company I will no longer be ashamed. Um, and that's, that's beautiful. But it's like, you didn't even win, you know? Like, right. what did you actually achieve? You you killed the standard bearer of the Southrons. Very good, well done. You know, <laughs> but like, but like in in the in the in the picture of like winning battles, he hasn't achieved it, but he knows that he's fulfilled his part in the story. And I think that that's one of the things that you see again and again in all the different shapes and sizes. The people who recognize I've got a part to play. It might be this big. It might be this big but I've got a part to play and they get on with it. That's something that is definitely to be received by us. Like we don't, you know, we don't all get to be like all the stuff about, you know, small hands do them while they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. Like most of the people who've ever read Lord of the Rings have pretty small hands, you know, like they're occasionally like the, who's it? Queen Margarita or whatever, you know, there are like people with real influence who read Lord of the Rings, but <laughs> most of us are just small hands and we do whatever we do because we must. And that's something, so that's something we can directly receive from the text and not just be like, well, that's a nice thing to say to hobbits because they've got very small hands, you know, but we, we have small hands. And so we do what we can with them. Right. And that is in some ways the best piece of wisdom that Tolkien imparts. Um, I don't want to keep you, too awful late because i know it's later than later than it is here where you are um bedtime. yeah uh and believe me i understand the value of bedtime especially when you have kids um so again i will urge everybody pick up the book it's good stuff um you can also find mr david Rowe at mr david Rowe, no spaces uh on twitter and if you really want to pick up some good twitter from mr david Rowe find his thread on you know one like one opinion on lord of the rings that 
probably doesn't matter anyway. There's a lot of really great stuff in that thread. Uh, is there anywhere Thanks. else you would like to direct viewers to get more of your stuff or thoughts or anything like uh, that? I mean, the only other thing is just my Tolkien Proverbs feed. Like one of the, the reason that... Um, what is the I, handle for that? That's a separate... It's just Tolkien Proverbs, yeah. Okay. Um, there's At no Tolkien gaps or spaces. Yeah. Um, and it's been, it's been a lot... Like I've been just posting three of those a day for, oh goodness knows, 10 years or so. And it's lovely to see because people react not based on, oh, I love this bit of the story, but they're like, oh, this means a lot to me today. And that's a really, that's one of those things that you're like, I'm glad that I'm copying and pasting this thing today. <laughs> like, I'm glad, I, like, it's really nice, but it's also, it, it just drip feeds little bits of Tolkien wisdom into your day. And it really genuinely can, can make a difference sometimes. And I, so I, that's, that's a nice little little drip feed part of, of Tolkien life that can do bits and pieces for you. Yeah. Well, and you're right. You're, it, it, there's been several times even that I've caught that feed and I've thought that is a really apt saying for today specifically for some reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and it happens with surprising regularity. So yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely follow at Tolkien Proverbs and at Mr. David Rowe, if you want just generally good stuff on Tolkien, uh, we will leave it there so you can go get to sleep. I'm sure you probably need some by now. Uh, and I will see everybody on the next video. Until the next time, Namarie. Thanks to all my Patreon patrons, especially Ringbearer's Ego Voice and One Patron to Rule Them All, and Elf Friends PA Brew News, Deanna Kaufman, Tracy Meehan, and Nathan Dufour.